You are now listening to the intersectionvictoria.com podcast. A place where faith meets facts. A podcast made for the thinking Christian and the skeptic. Welcome to our series entitled The Man Who Split History in Two, where we take a historical analytical view of the life of Jesus. I believe in a God who holds the heavens and the earth in existence. I believe that on the basis of rational evidence. The Kramasinger came out with a conclusion, and Frederick Coyle both said this, there is no way to explain the origin of life, and I'm quoting Coyle now, in an earthbound explanation. Something extraterrestrial had to be brought into this plane, to this picture. Welcome to our first installment in the Man Who Split History in Two series. Now, why study the life of Jesus in a serious, analytical, historical way? Well, because today's date, as well as your birthday, graduation date, and every other date on our calendar, is the number of days, months, and years after Jesus' estimated date of birth. The Egyptian pyramids are dated by counting the number of years they were built before Christ. Hence the before Christ or BC terminology used until the 1990s instead of the modern before current era or BCE that we use nowadays. He literally splits history in two, before and after his arrival. Jesus is also the most common figure in all religion. The Muslims declare him as a sinless prophet. The Buddhists embrace him as an enlightened teacher. Mormons and Jehovah's Witnesses call him the son of God. Hindus see him as a godly apparition of the hundreds of, of one of the hundreds of millions of gods. And of course, the world's largest religion, that is Christianity, Orthodox, Protestant, Catholic, holds him to be the God in the flesh come to save the world from her sins. Jesus is the central figure in the most influential and best-selling book of all time, the Judeo-Christian Bible. Further, Considering that Western civilization was built, in most part, on Christian legal and moral ethics, the most technological, medically and financially advanced civilization in history is an ideological product of Jesus' teachings. More art and academic study have been aimed at Christ than any other single person in all of history. So now, if we ask, why study the life of Jesus, can we not answer by saying, why not? Now, obviously, the first question to ask is, did Jesus even exist? In other words, what's at the center of Christianity, a myth or a man? Here we're going to look at Roman, Jewish, and other non-Christian sources on Jesus' life. So one question that began surfacing in scholarly circles in the 1800s is whether or not Jesus even existed. What is interesting is that there's little to no evidence of such questions the further back in history one looks. It's as though you have to put a comfortable amount of distance between yourself and this first century man called Jesus in order to be taken seriously when questioning Jesus' actual, mere physical existence. The following list of references should make it clear that Jesus' existence is more than a probability. It's a question that should, in all fairness, be put to rest. One thing the reader may want to take note of is the fact that in the first century A.D., or what we call today CE, or current era, writing materials were made of highly corruptible papyrus. Therefore, the nearly two full millennia which have passed since Christ's lifetime will have resulted in many manuscripts regarding Jesus' life to be lost. 
And we must remember that for almost 300 years after Christ's life, his followers' belief in him was illegal and the church was driven underground throughout the Roman Empire. There was no central committee overseeing the copying and storage of written materials. This will mean that the actual number of accounts of Christ's life will never be known. Whatever we possess today is the tip of the iceberg. Lastly, in the 1st and 2nd century AD or CE, writing materials were not as commonly available as they are today. Most information, therefore, was passed on orally. Writing materials were relatively expensive and not as readily available to the average household as paper and books are today. Homes did not possess libraries full of books and magazines, and texts were usually property of synagogues or government officials. This helps to set the stage for our inquiry into the records concerning the man named Jesus of Nazareth. Would he have walked and talked in our modern times? The written and recorded materials concerning his life would be incredibly more abundant. You'll notice that we talk about primary, secondary, and tertiary sources when it comes to historical evidence. Now, if I'm writing about something that either I've seen as an eyewitness or that happened during my lifetime, I'm considered a primary source. Those are the best kind, obviously. Let's say that I write about stuff, and in the next generation, some guy copies my stuff or writes about my stuff. Doesn't copy it, but just mentions my information. And then let's say all my information that I wrote is burned in a fire. There's no evidence of it, other than the comments that the guy in the next generation wrote about my work. He's considered a secondary source and so on. So if his works are lost, but they're commented on by another person from another generation, well, that's a tertiary source, and so on. Now, we're going to start off with Tacitus, who lived in AD, or what we would call today CE, 55 to 120. And his name is Cornelius Tacitus. He was a Roman historian who lived through the reigns of over half a dozen Roman emperors. His works include the annals, as well as histories, totaling about 30 books. Now, Tacitus recorded one reference to Christ and two, early, two to early Christianity. The following excerpt is found in Annals, and it was written about A.D. 15. It concerns the great fire in Rome. Nero fastened the guilt and inflicted the most exquisite tortures on Christians. Christus, from whom the name had its origin, suffered the extreme penalty during the reign of Tiberius at the hands of Pontius Pilate and a most mischievous superstition broke out in Judea. Now the rest of the excerpt details how Christians were severely tortured and killed by Nero. Tacitus himself adds that these executions seemed unnecessary and cruel, driven by Nero's lust for pain and not justice. Being an official government historian, his work would have to have been reviewed and approved by Rome. Also, much if not all of his information would be derived from official government sources. This fact makes it reasonable to assume knowledge of Christians and their superstition concerning Christ was well known at the time. This parallels the notion of a post-crucifixion superstition held by Christians that Jesus had come back from death, a notion which the book of Acts describes happened after the crucifixion. It's also interesting to note the historical reference Tacitus makes to Tiberius Caesar's reign being in place during Jesus' execution. This is what the New Testament Calls, says as well. Another Roman author, Sulpicus Severus, does quote Tacitus, Tacitus's lost works, reporting that the latter, Tacitus, spoke of the Roman destruction of the Jerusalem temple in AD 70. 
In Severus's account, Tacitus again mentions Christians being present. And now, because Tacitus was mentioning things that happened during his lifetime, he's considered a primary source. Next up is Suetonius, who lived from A.D., or as we say nowadays, C.E., 69 to 140, another Roman source who's primary. Um, Gaius Suetonius Tranquillus is his full name. He's the official chief secretary to Emperor Hadrian, who reigned at, from 80, 117 to 138. And Suetonius had access to imperial records. Suetonius is yet another Roman historian who made mention of Christians and the object of their quote-unquote superstition, a man named Crestus, which is a variant spelling of Christ. The following is an excerpt from his work. Because the Jews, at Rome, caused continuous disturbances at the instigation of Crestus, he expelled them from the city. An interesting aspect to this quote is... In the book of Acts, chapter 18, verse 2, it mentions that Paul met a Jewish couple leaving Rome because Emperor Claudius commanded that all Jews be deported. Claudius reigned from AD 41 to 54, decades before Hadrian, but it appears there was a pattern of persecution of Jewish Christians, which helps corroborate this Roman source. And next is another primary Roman source from a guy called Pliny the Younger. He lived from AD 61 to 113. Now, by the way, A.D. is the old school way. Until the 90s, we used B.C. and A.D. B.C. was before Christ, and A.D. was Anno Domini, Latin for the year of our Lord. And again, since the 90s, textbooks and colleges just began to, without a vote, without any, just, just as a pattern, they started calling it before the current era and the current era. So C.E. means A.D. When I say A.D., I mean C.E. So Plyman, Pliny uh, was a Roman author and administrator serving as governor of Bithynia in Asia Minor. Of his major works, the tenth and final book, which he wrote around A.D. 112, mentions Jesus and the Christian movement. He speaks of their influence in smothering the surrounding pagan religions and their unwillingness to turn from their religion, meaning Christians unwilling to turn from their religion, even with the penalty of death hanging over their heads. Pliny himself interrogated and ordered their executions. Furthermore, he speaks of the rumors surrounding the early Christian church. They were in the habit of meeting on a certain fixed day, before it was light, when they sang a hymn to Christ, as to a God, and bound themselves by a solemn oath, not to do any wicked deeds, but never to commit any fraud, theft or adultery, never to falsify their word, nor deny a trust, when they should be called upon to deliver it up. After which it was their custom to separate and then reassemble to partake of food, but food of an ordinary and innocent kind. What's interesting here is we're seeing an ancient non-biblical reference to the fact that Christians worshipped Christ. Also, you notice that Pliny has a disclaimer. He says that the Christians were only eating food of a quote-unquote ordinary and innocent kind. Why would he say innocent? Well, what historians think is that this is perhaps a reference to the reputation Christians had for quote-unquote drinking human blood, which would be an obvious misunderstanding of the sacrament of Christian communion in which Christians drink wine as a symbol of Christ's blood. Tertullian, uh, a church, an early church father from A.D. 160 to 225, references not only this above quote by Pliny the Younger, but also Emperor Trajan's answer, which we'll see next. So next up will be Trajan, who's answering Pliny the Younger's inquiry. 
Now, he was an emperor. Trajan was a Roman emperor who ruled from A.D. 98 to 117. He lived from 53 to 117. Now, he writes in response to Pliny the Younger's letters when he's, in, when he's inquiring on how do you best deal with Christians. So Trajan essentially replies by asking Pliny to show mercy and fairness. Next up will be Emperor Hadrian, and he ruled from A.D. 117 to 138. He came right after Trajan, and he's another primary Roman source. So he writes to Minucius Fundinus, the Asian proconsul, issuing a statement demanding fair treatment of Christians brought to court. So the, you can see here, now the emperors are starting to feel sorry for the, the way Christians have been treated. And it shows that they were, these Christians believed in something that was illegal to believe in in Rome, which is why they were being brought to court. Because they weren't known, as we see from other historical sources, they weren't, we were, they weren't known as being criminals. They were actually the best citizens. But they, their belief was illegal, and they were being killed for it. It started to make some of the emperors even begin to have merciful feelings towards them. So now moving on from Roman to Greek sources, we're going to look at a man named Thallus. Now, it's estimated that around the year 52, he wrote a history of the Eastern Mediterranean. Now, most of his works are lost, including the one that... In that we're going to talk about right now. Now, he was quoted by somebody who lived about 200 years later, a man named Julius Africanus, quotes Thallus. So that means that this source from Thallus is secondary. And here is the quote. On the whole world, there pressed a most fearful darkness, and the rocks were shaken by an earthquake, and many places in Judea and other districts were thrown down. This darkness, Thallus, in the third book of his history, says, as far as it appears to me, without reason, an eclipse of the sun. So as we see, Africanus is, is refuting, or rebukes Thallus's claim that the eclipse caused the darkness of Jesus' crucifixion. He doesn't believe it's, a, it's an eclipse because the Jewish Passover, which is when Jesus was crucified is always held every year at a full moon. And now we're going to look at Lucian, who would be considered a Syrian, and he wrote about events of his time. So this would be a primary Syrian source about uh, early Christianity. So Lucian was a 2nd century satirist. So basically, think Voltaire. Think of irreverent comedians. That's what he was. He was somewhat vulgar and irreverent when he talked about Christianity. He had a dim view of Christians and their movement. Nevertheless, his quotations on this new religion bring insight to the popular knowledge concerning Christ and his followers in the A.D. 100s, the current era 100s, um, the century after Christ. The Christians worship a man to this day, the distinguished person who introduced their novel rites and was crucified on that account. These misguided creatures start with the general conviction that they are immortal for all time, which explains the contempt of death and voluntary self-devotion. It was impressed on them, by their original lawgiver, which is Christ, that they, are all brothers, from the moment that they, are converted, and deny the gods of Greece, and, worship the crucified sage, and live after his laws. This they take, on faith. And they despise all worldly goods, regarding them merely as common property. Elsewhere in his writings, Lucian reports that Christians held, quote-unquote, sacred writings from which they read and taught frequently. 
possibly a reference to the early notion that Christians had that the Bible or the New Testament was inspired scripture. Now, our next source is a man named Marabar Serapian. He was a Syrian, and he wrote about events that happened before his time. So, I don't know where he got the sources, but he would be considered a secondary source because he would have gotten his information from the generation after uh, Christ. The British Museum owns the manuscript of a letter written between the 1st and 3rd century AD. We don't know exactly when. So in, in the, basically the, could have been in the hundreds, could have been in the 200s, could have been in the, you know, first hundred years after Christ. A Syrian by the name of Marabaras, Marabar Serapian writes to his son from prison. He mentions Socrates, Pythagoras, and Jesus as good wise men killed for no good reason by their contemporaries. He further references Jesus as the Jewish king, very obviously making reference to Christians' claims and not to accept a Jewish custom. All right, we're going to move on to Jewish sources about uh, early Christianity and Jesus. Now, this next work is, is dubbed, the, we don't know who wrote it, but it's called, the work itself is called the Toledoth Yeshu. And it's a secondary source because it's written after the generation of Christ's lifetime. It's an early Jewish manuscript, and it's possibly written prior to the 6th century AD, so the 500s. And it is written in an ir irreverent tone, an irreverent tone. So it's it's it doesn't see Jesus in a positive light. And it mocks even Christians' belief about Jesus. And it adds a strange and vulgar anecdote to Jesus' life in regarding his mom and, and him nursing when he was an older man. And it, it's, it's fairly blasphemous from the Christian perspective. Now, Toledoth Yeshu gives an anecdotal account of a gardener named Judah, who is supposedly in the midst of fooling the apostles, planned to steal Jesus' body after the crucifixions. In other words, it counts a tale in which this gardener hears the apostles saying, we're going to steal Jesus' body from the tomb after the crucifixion. So J Judah, the gardener in the story, apparently steals Jesus' body himself and buries it in a second separate tomb when no one's looking. And when the apostles come to find the original tomb empty, they start to believe that the Christ is risen. And then Judah sells Judas's, sorry, Judah sells Jesus's body to Jewish religious leaders who then proceed to drag the dead body of Jesus through the streets of Jerusalem. Justin Martyr, an early Christian uh, scholar, wrote also about the Jewish leaders promoting similar stories to compete with the burgeoning belief by Christians in Christ's resurrection. So what's significant here is that the Jewish stories and the story in this Toledoth Yeshu that we're just looking at are all competing stories to, to describe an empty tomb. So this is historical evidence that early on it was known by everyone, Christians, Jews, Romans, that an empty tomb. The next Jewish source is Flavius Josephus. He's a famous Jewish historian working for the Roman commander Vespasian. Now, he lived from A.D. or C.E. 37 to 97. So he writes about Christ's life. Now, we don't know exactly when Christ died. It could have been the mid to late 30s. But we're going to consider him a secondary source just to be safe. But he's a very close to being a, pri a primary source. So he makes two specific mentions of Jesus, one which was made via a simple mention of James, the quote-unquote brother of Jesus. He summoned the court of the Sanhedrin and brought before it James, the brother of Jesus, 
who was also called Christ. And, after accusing them of transgressing the law, delivered them over to be stoned to death. This action aroused the indignation of all citizens of the highest reputation. Origen, who lived uh, in A.D. or C.E. 185 to 254, was an early church father who also quotes this passage three times in his writings. Church father Eusebius, who lived A.D. 260 to 341, mentions this same James, brother of Jesus' execution, in a separate text, corroborating, so both corroborate Josephus' account. Another reference to Jesus is found in Josephus' work, describing Christ as a resurrected miracle worker. About this time there lived Jesus, a wise man, if indeed one ought to call him a man. For he was one who performed surprising deeds, and was a teacher of such people as accept the truth gladly. He won over many Jews and many of the Greeks. He was the Christ. Now, seeing as Josephus was Jewish and a known anti-Christian, it's highly unlikely that this quote is perfectly accurate. Furthermore, Origen, the church father, states that Josephus flat out refused to call Christ the Messiah. Now, a modern scholar by the name of Professor Shlomo Pines of the Hebrew University in Jerusalem he discovered in 1972 an Arabic manuscript, an Arabic language copy of Josephus's works, which had never been found before. And it contained a different version of this exact same reference from Josephus. It's, as you'll see, much more demure in nature and consequently more believable, seeing as it, its Arabic origin would have placed it outside the ability of the Roman Christian church's influence. The Muslim uh, scholars would not have had that that strain of documents. They had their own, their own copy untouched. And so here's the Arabic text. At this time there was a wise man who was called Jesus. His conduct was good and he was known to be virtuous. And many people from among the Jews and the other nations became his disciples. Pilate condemned him to be crucified and to die. But those who had become his disciples did not abandon his discipleship. They reported that he had appeared to them three days after his crucifixion, and that he was alive. Accordingly he was perhaps the Messiah, concerning whom the prophets have recounted wonders. So this version of Josephus's quotation states some pretty non-controversial facts concerning Jesus. That he was, namely that he was crucified by Pontius Pilate, known as a quote-unquote good man, had disciples who believed in his resurrection, and was quote-unquote, perhaps the prophesied Messiah. Now, such a reference about Jesus could very conceivably have originally come from Josephus and have later been manipulated in the Christian Roman Empire's version of the copy to create the dubious Christian-friendly quote first mentioned above. Now, nevertheless, it's more likely than not that Josephus made some mention of Jesus and it was later tainted or embellished. Josephus also mentioned Herod's killing of John the Baptist and he also mentions the high priest Ananias, both important persons mentioned in the New Testament Gospels accounts of Jesus' life. Now, Josephus is one of the most well-respected, prominent historians of the Palestinian, Judea, Syrian, and Roman Empire of that first century. So the fact that he makes mention of it is significant. Our last Jewish source will be the Talmud. Now, what is the Talmud? It, first of all, it'll be considered a secondary source on Jesus in early Christianity because it was written in the about 100 years after Christ's lifetime. 
Jews had a tremendous volume of oral history prior to the 2nd century AD, or CE. Rabbi Akaba compiled this information into a written text before his death in AD 135. His student, Rabbi Meir, revised it, and Rabbi Judah completed it in AD 200. The final text of the oral tradition of Jewish theology was called the Mishnah, and a commentary was produced on the Mishnah, which is called the Gemaras. When you put the Mishnah and the Gemaras together, they form what's called the Talmud, or Talmud. Uh, the, in the Sanhedrin 43a portion of the Talmud, we see a report on Jesus. On the eve of Passover, Yeshua was hanged. For forty days before the execution took place, a herald went forth and cried. He is going forth to be stoned because he has practiced sorcery and enticed Israel to apostasy. Anyone who can say anything in his favor, let him come forward and plead on his behalf. But, since nothing was brought forward in his favor, he was hanged, on the eve of the Passover. As the New Testament attests, the Jewish religious leaders lusted for Jesus' death for some time before it actually came about. Crucifixion was solely a Roman convention. And as the Bible records, the Jewish leaders finally restored, resorted to appealing to Roman procurator Pontius Pilate. Yet they had plotted to kill Jesus long before the crucifixion, but never found an opportunity or a proper context. Note that the Talmud, Talmud records, as does the New Testament, that no one publicly defended Jesus. Elsewhere in the Talmud, a mention is made of five disciples of Jesus being executed for their unwillingness to deny him. So this 40-day herald is not recorded in the Bible which seems to imply that he was under Jewish religious arrest for over a month before his execution. And that's not what the New Testament account states. Now, what you have to consider here is the mere physical existence of Jesus is being contested here, not the accuracy of the New Testament. Second, the Talmud is a strict Jewish text. It came from the oral traditions of the Jewish religious leaders. Perhaps it, and not the New Testament, is inaccurate. Perhaps the religious Jews wanted to recount a view of Jesus' execution, which made it seem as though they had given him a proper fair trial, but none was made. So, in conclusion for this, this installment, we've seen in this section three separate types of sources, all of them not the New Testament. So first, we had historians of the 1st and 2nd centuries who were paid by governments that were hostile to Christianity, these were Roman and Jewish historians. And second, we saw religious institutions who strongly opposed Christ both before and after his crucifixion, which would be the Judaic system in Jerusalem. They wrote about him and early Christians. And finally, we heard from third-party observers like Marabar Serapian and Lucian, who had no interest either way, but were not Christians themselves. So if we compile all these early sources and draw out some basic facts from about Jesus' life and early Christianity, here's what we can draw. Seven points that we can draw. Number one, a man named Jesus was tortured and crucified by Pontius Pilate during the time of Tiberius' reign. Number two, Jesus' followers worshipped him as a god and were rumored to gather and partake of food and perhaps drink blood, which is an obvious misunderstanding of communion. Number three, Jesus' followers were named Christians and they were willing to die for their quote-unquote superstition. Number four, 
Emperors such as Nero and Pliny regularly tortured and killed Christians. Number five, the quote-unquote superstition of the Christians was contagious and it was decreasing the activity of competing religions. Furthermore, people of all ages and classes, economic classes, were joining the movement. Number six, Christians were known for their moral behavior and their unjust torture and execution sometimes stirred compassion from the general public. And finally, number seven, the location of Jesus' tomb was known and was indeed believed to have been found empty after his death and burial by both the anti-Christian Jews, Romans, and the Christians themselves. So you've got to look at the, this evidence, and you've got to ask yourself, is it even possible that these things could be written about a man who never existed? So be open-minded. And remember, this case does not even include the letters written between the 2nd century church fathers, the Gnostic Gospels, or the New Testament itself. We've basically tied one arm behind our backs in order to present the first part of our historical analysis of the life of Jesus. In the next installment, we're going to look at the Christian church fathers and Gnostic gospel sources that talk about Christ in the first and second century. Thank you for joining us. See you next time. Thank you for joining us. Please visit our website and social media. Find us at intersectionvictoria.com Goodbye